Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? You are listening to The Big Cruise Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Big Cruise Podcast. My name is Baz and I am your host. And uh, we've got quite a cracker of a show today. Of course, uh, Chris will be stopping by in just a moment with all things maritime history and uh, cruise news. Pete's actually uh, taking a week off, but he's going to be back next week with his uh, usual five uh, fast facts for a particular cruise topic. And uh, this week, we've got a special guest. Now, I did say in last week's episode, there would be a standalone bonus episode. Uh, but a few of you gave some feedback that um, it was okay to have a slightly longer podcast. It didn't really matter. So I uh, went back on my plans and I'm including our special guest in the uh, normal episode today. Uh, so Robin West, the uh, Vice President of uh, Expedition Operations at Seabourn, uh, will be stopping by for the second half of the show. And he's got some incredible information. If you've ever considered or ever wondered uh, what an expedition cruise might be like, then uh, do stay tuned to, to listen into uh, my chat with Robin West because there is some incredible information in there. Now, a little uh, thank you and a little shout out to the team at Travel Daily, which is a uh, travel trade publication read by the, the, the travel industry. And uh, they uh, recognized myself and uh, this podcast uh, for our efforts and trying to stay positive in this uh, terrible time that we're going through as part of the, the COVID and how that's impacting the travel industry. So uh, whilst the, the award and recognition was kind of directed towards myself, I do think it's important to share it with, of course, Chris and Pete and uh, all of the guests that have been on the show in the past 26 episodes, whether they are uh, cruisers leaving an honest cruise review or whether they are cruise line employees, captains, cruise directors, uh, we've had an incredible array of guests. So uh, it's with the help of all of these guests and our regular uh, guests, Chris and Pete, that we've managed to to keep positive and keep uh, uh, a little tunnel of light available for us uh, to to keep our focus on uh, when on what cruising will be like when we can get back to it. So uh, thank you to the team at Travel Daily. It is very much appreciated. And thank you to everybody that has been a part of the show because without you, it, it wouldn't be possible. 
Also, just a reminder, if you want to be a part of the show, you can send in listener questions. You can ask to uh, leave a cruise review. We'd be happy to chat with you about that. The best way to get in touch is via our website, thebigcruisepodcast.com. There is a button towards the top right-hand corner that says join the show. Click on that. It's very, very straightforward. And uh, whether it's a question for myself, Chris, Pete, um, or whether you want to, uh, you know, talk about a cruise that you've been on we'd love you to be a part of the show but i guess without further ado let's jump straight over to chris and a little later we'll head over to to join robin west too enjoy the show And as always, our first guest on every podcast is uh, our good friend, maritime historian and all things cruise news, Chris Frame. Welcome back. Thanks so much, Barry. Good to be here. Yeah. Now, um, last week we touched on a bit of sad news from uh, from here in Australia, and it kind of ties in with your your video, which you put out uh, to every week. Uh, uh-huh. So uh, for maritime history, I think you're going to touch on uh, the beloved CN Sun Princess. Yeah, that's right. So um, after our little chat last week, when we talked about how the Sun and Sea Princess are both um, retiring from the Princess fleet to go off to a new life with a yet-to-be-disclosed owner. Um, I did a little bit of research into these ships because it's interesting to, to look at even modern-day uh, cruise ships that have made a huge impact on the different cruise lines. And we're seeing quite a lot of those ships leaving fleets at the moment. So you know, if you look at the the Monarch and the um, and the Sovereign, for example, they were groundbreaking ships in the 1980s for Royal Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the Fantasy, who's also being scrapped, she's um, it was a groundbreaking ship for for Carnival, and now Princess has sold not not scrapped, but sold some of its um, groundbreaking and you know, original big ships. So the Sun and the Sea Princess were actually two of four ships that were. Um, delivered of the Sun class. So the Sun Princess was the first uh, delivered, and so the whole class of ships was named after her, the Sun class of cruise ships. Um, And so it was the Sun Princess um, first in 1995, and then she was followed by the Dawn Princess in 1997. You might remember the Dawn Princess because it's been quite a lot of time in Australian waters towards the end of its career. Um, Dawn Princess incidentally now sails as Pacific Explorer, so she's still in Australia. Um, and then there was the Sea Princess, which joined the fleet in 98, and she was followed by the Ocean Princess um, in 2000. Um, and so the four of them were uh, part of the Princess fleet for, for several years together as a, as a, a quartet. Um, but the Sun Princess herself particularly was quite um, a step up for Princess because um, Princess Cruises had been, uh, was at this time in the 90s, owned by P&O. And P&O was um, its own entity. It wasn't part of Carnival Corp back then. So um, Princess had been purchased by uh, P&O back in the 1970s. And P&O had grown Princess very very slowly and, and stably by acquiring older ships. Uh, and a lot of this was also done through mergers and acquisitions. So when they merged or, or rather acquired uh, Sitmar cruisers, some of the Sitmar ships were... Um, transferred across to um, Princess. Now, in the 1980s, they built a new ship, a brand new ship called the Royal Princess, which was an all-outside cabin uh, luxury cruise ship for Princess Cruises. And that sort of gave them a bit of a taste as to what um, it would be like to to build a ship for this brand. Um, But it wasn't until 1995 that they actually um, committed to a class of ships. And so the Sun Princess being the first one, 
quite different in its design, very sort of angular exterior with lots of um, outside cabins, lots of balcony cabins, big interior spaces. And then the four of them um, were sort of all built to those same specifications. Some of the design features that were incorporated into the Sun class have since been sort of expanded and and become signature spaces on board Princess. Um, And with the removal of Dawn and Ocean Princess, Ocean Princess went off to become Oceana for P&O UK. And Dawn of Princess, course, yep. of course, here as yeah, um, as Pacific Explorer. So Sun and Sea Princess were the were the only two that were left. Interestingly enough, Sea Princess actually also went to P and O UK for a little stint and became Adonia for a few years in the early two thousands. Well, of um, course, yeah. So yeah, so Sun Princess is actually the only one of the um, of the four that stayed with um, Princess for its entire career without any interruptions. And do you? Um, do you know one of Sun Princess's claims to fame? It's a television connection. Can you can you guess what it might be? Ooh, love boats. I don't know. Yes, actually, that's oh, correct. Okay. So I don't know if you know this, uh, if you remember this, or if any of the of any of the listeners remember this. But in the in the two thousands, they actually did a reboot of the Love Boat TV show, which is because the original Love Boat was filmed on board Princess cruiser ships back in the nineteen eighties, and in the nine in the two thousands, they did a reboot two seasons. Um, and it was filmed on board the Sun Princess. So that's her little claim to fame from a, um, a television sort of uh, perspective. And you can uh, find those old episodes and uh, see the interior of the ship used throughout that. So, yeah, there we go. So uh, with them leaving, <laughs> now, it's interesting because both Sun Princess and Sea Princess have been very popular in Australian ports recently. Like their retirement means that a whole heap of cruises locally have been cancelled, which we touched on. Um, last week but they also because of that have become very popular internationally so they've got a, a very broad following um, around the world due to these world cruises and long duration stints that they do in different ports so it will be sad to see them go and it also does remove the smallest um, well there's there's one ship that's smaller in the princess fleet but these four these four were like the smallest class of ships that were still um, available yeah. to princess until their retirement so i guess princess is really going all in on the big ship cruising now yeah, God, I'd forgotten about the the reboots of of Love Boats. I do remember the original cast coming down to Australia and doing something mm. on board one of the ships, which must have been um, obviously the Sun Princess. But, Sun Princess, yeah, um, yeah. Wow. I think it was um, from 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 memory and from what I was looking into. It looks like the at least the first episode was like a reunion episode where all the original people were there as well. So right. <laughs> I never watched the show <laughs> myself, but um, you know, it was um, it was interesting that all those years later that they. That they still chose the princess brand to do um, the love because, yeah. of course, she she made the island and uh, Pacific princess from back in the nineteen eighties, which which were the two ships that were used for filming of the love boat. They, they made those kind of iconic um, ships in the nineteen eighties. So um, this one didn't last quite as long. It was only I think they only got two seasons out of it. But <laughs> uh, yeah, some princesses there, and you can see it on the on the front of the. Uh, if you Google it on the DVDs, you can see the big, big picture of the ship sitting there. So, um, and, and you know, it'd be interesting to see also where they go because we haven't yet been told who the buyer is. So, who's going to operate um, these ships? Because of course, Dawn Princess yeah. still still sails as um, Pacific Explorer. Ocean Princess was Oceana, then she's since been sold, and now uh, will be sailing as a cruise ship in Greece. So, um, she's called Queen of the Oceans uh, now. So, who knows what's going to happen with Sun and Sea Princess? I guess we'll have to find out. Yeah, and um, I don't know if you realise, but the, the the ship's horn on certainly on the newer vessels is actually the Love Boat theme tune. 
Yeah, they've got a um, a programmed because you can some of these whistles and horns you can actually program in different um, different sound effects. <laughs> Obviously, Disney same. has done it for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Disney's done it, and actually, um, funnily enough, some of them do do special occasion ones. So there's this wonderful video that you can find on YouTube as well of um, when it was uh, the Queen Mary II's tenth anniversary. The Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth's horns were used to play happy birthday. It's quite remarkable. Oh. <laughs> um, and that's obviously not normal. Cunard never usually does that, but they can program yeah. it into these, into these whistles. And so, yeah, as you say, with, um, uh, with princess, they can do that with them, with, at least with the ships that are fitted with the correct uh, technology uh, to play the, to play pretty much anything really, but the love boat theme uh, would definitely be one that people remember. <laughs> Yeah. Now, uh, same with the, the Dawn kind of theme, uh, not to be confused with uh, Dawn Princess, the mm. Pacific Dawn is uh, heading off into the sunset. Yes, and Pacific Dawn, funnily enough, was one of those Sitma ships that was transferred to Princess back in the um, in the uh, early 1990s when Princess <laughs> and um, Sitma's uh, fleets were merged together. Um, so Dawn Princess, she started uh, her history as a, as a Princess cruiser ship and then, of course, came across here. Um, to become Pacific Dawn. Um, she's much loved, ship 70,000 tons, and she was originally flagged to leave the fleet um, next year to go uh, to sail with CMV. So it's not like it's a surprise that she's um, leaving P&O um, cruises in Australia. But CMV, of course, ceased operations during the coronavirus yep. shutdown. Um, so there was a big question mark over the top of um, Pacific Dawn and also Pacific Aria, which was supposed to go to CMV as well. Um, so uh, P&O has now said that they've um, found a new buyer, but again, we, we haven't been told who. So it'd be interesting again to find out where this ship is going. Um, and they did point out when they were announcing this that over her Australian career, um, she carried 1.2 rather million passengers in that in that time that she's been here. So... Um, which is, you know, well over a decade uh, worth of cruising in Australian waters. Now, her sister ship, which is you know, visually practically identical, was the Pacific Jewel, which also mm -hmm. um, was designed by Sitma and, and sailed first for Princess. Um, and one of the things that I found interesting, Barry, is that uh, Pacific Jewel um, had a number of different uh, owners throughout her career. So she was with Princess, then she was did a stint with um Ocean Village, and she she did some uh, cruising with Aida and with um, Arosa, and then ended up with P and O. And funnily enough, when you walk around the ship, if you're paying attention, I, I even found uh, noticed on one door leading out to the forward observation deck that there was still a Princess Cruises logo on the door. All those years <laughs> later, so so their, their their past histories do catch up with them. It's it's interesting. But uh, Pacific Jewel went across to to India to become Karnaka. Uh, for um, a new cruise line, Jalish Cruises. So, yep. yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with Pacific Dawn, but um, it wouldn't surprise me if she was used by by a um, an upcoming brand to try and expand their their presence in yep. in local cruising. Yeah. Now uh, let's go into some more positive news. There's uh, a few sea trials and various oh. different things happening around the world. First of all, the uh, the new ship for Princess, the Enchanted Princess, um, has um, been handed over from the shipyard to Princess Cruises. Yes, absolutely. So the fifth of the Royal class of 145,000 tons, so a very big ship. And again, following that theme that we were talking about with Princess, it seems to be a Princess-heavy podcast today. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, big ship cruising, obviously, with um, ships of that size. Uh, she is the 18th ship that Fincantieri has built for Princess over the years. Um, and 
um, you know, Fincantieri were uh, the Italian shipyard. They um, were actually responsible for building um, the um, what what became the Pacific Dawn and Pacific Jewel, the um, original crown and um, and regal princess. So that's where their sort of co- um, connection with Princess Cruises mm-hmm. started all the way back in the 1990s um, by building those two ships. So um, interestingly enough, uh, Enchanted Princess will be the 100th ship that Fincantieri has built, cruise ship that Fincantieri has built in the last 30 years. Um, but that is dwarfed by in scale by the number of ships that Fincantieri and its um, its forebears had built in the in the history of the company. Two hundred and thirty years has been operational. Um, Seven thousand ships since eighteen wow. um, seventeen eighty, rather, when the company, um, well, when its origins were first uh, established. And of course, it doesn't just build cru- cruise ships; it's built ocean liners and it's built um, uh, also uh, military and cargo vessels and stuff as well. So there's a, a big range of ships that the company has built across various shipyards. But a um, hundred cruise ships in thirty years is pretty impressive. Yeah, and you touched on something there that I guess most people don't realise. When we think of Fincantieri, we think of a shipyard, but actually, mm. it's multiple shipyards mm. located all over Italy. It's it's an incredible operation. It is. It's uh, there's different yards, so you'll hear them uh, talk about the Fincantieri yards, and then there, there might be then afterwards you might see like a, a location. So there's one near Venice. There's one uh, in Genoa. There's there's yards uh, in various different locations for different purposes, and uh, it is, as you say, a huge operation. Um, that is one of the dominant players now in the ship build, or cruise ship building industry. But by far, they they have a very um, strong presence in that area, along with um, uh, shipyards in in Germany and also in France. So uh, European shipyards definitely um, uh, lead the way when it comes to building cruise ships. Yeah, and great to see that they've continued with the expansion of the medallion class as well, which um, right. I have to admit, when I first experienced medallion, I was a little bit sceptical of what, what it could do, but it, it really does elevate your cruise to the next the next level. So uh, great to see that continue and be rolled out further across the fleet. Now, staying with Carnival Corporation, um, Carnival, as in the brand itself, uh-huh. has um, got Mardi Gras on the horizon. What's happening with her? So Mardi Gras is a, a, a big deal. She's a big ship, and she's... Um, kind of a, a special ship because she sort of signifies the um, the coming of age, I suppose, of Carnival Cruise Lines because it's been operating uh, uh, almost for 50 years now and she's named after the first um, ever Carnival Cruise ship. So she certainly stands out. She's got a different uh, livery. She's got a big, big blue bow, which makes her stand out amongst the other yeah. Carnival ships. And she's been under construction. Obviously, things have been delayed a bit due to all of the COVID shutdowns, but she's now set sail on her sea trials, which is a, a very important part of the building process, particularly when it comes to accepting a ship. Um, the ship has to go out to sea and perform all of the different maneuvers and um, speed um, trials and all that sort of thing to make sure that it can um, perform the way that it was advertised when they when they purchased the uh, well they when they signed up to build it. Now that also includes some really interesting things like hard uh, hard turns. So they'll be going at full speed and then try and turn the ship and see how it how it performs, um, how quickly they can stop it. So um, how many um, nautical miles it takes for the ship to actually slow down and stop, um, and also the fastest it can go. So they can kind of give it a rating as to what its maximum speed is. And uh, this is, uh, you know, produces some amazing visuals when you see these ships performing like this, but it also is what will be used to sort of signify that the ship is ready for Carnival to take 
um, possession of it, I suppose. And then they have a big ceremony where they, they sort of hand the ship over. So um, she is going to be out for just over a week doing that. Um, and interestingly enough, will be one of the latest sort of ships in terms of machinery because she and her, uh, the other ones in the same class as her, which is spaced out over various brands, um, are powered by um, LNG, liquefied natural gas, rather than um, the traditional crude diesel. So um, a bit more environmentally friendly, I suppose, when it comes to the, the fuel selected used on board these ships. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Carnival Mardi Gras will be operating on Caribbean itineraries from Port Canaveral. Mm. We're going to go from one mega ship uh, down to a much smaller ship <laughs> um, and a brand that was around quite some time ago, but has, um, has been, I guess if somebody has purchased the brand name mm. and is re-emerging, um, Swan Hellenic have yeah. uh, laid the keel for their first two expedition vessels. Yeah, so the ship's going to be called Minerva. Um, as you say, very different sort of scale, 150 passengers across um, only 76 cabins. But Swan Hellenic was always kind of known for smaller smaller ships anyway. They never had massive ships in their fleet in their previous incarnation. And the brand itself had a very um, sort of, despite, you know, obviously shutting down, it had a, um, had a loyal following. So I think that's probably why um, it's been kind of reborn because people have missed it over the years. Yeah. Um, so laying the keel is is basically the first step in putting the ship together. Um, they, they start off the building process by doing um, the cutting of the steel, which is obviously where they cut these pieces up that are going to be used to build the ship. And then they, they place down nowadays, generally it's like blocks of prefabricated parts of the ship, which they build in a, in a, in a um, dry dock. But the keel itself is the very bottom part of the ship. Um, traditionally, if you're thinking about older ships, all the way up until sort of the 1970s, um, it would be like a long, a long spine that the rest of the ship would be built off, um, and mm-hmm. you would see it sort of laid down across the the slipway with these sort of um, ribs almost coming out from the other side of it that would be used to attach all the metal for the hull. Um, but now it's generally done as sort of blocks. So the keel's already built within the first block and it gets put down and then they build the other ones around it. Um, and so that's obviously like the symbolic starting of the construction of the ship and a very important step because you have to get the keel in the correct location to allow the rest of the ship to be built out safely from that spot. So with that underway, the ship's basically under construction now um, and it's only a matter of time until she'll be ready for float out and sea trials. Yeah, exactly. And uh, staying actually in the UK, which uh, Minerva, the uh, Swan Atlantic, sorry, was a, a UK brand. Um, Saga is another uh, popular UK uh, cruise brand, mm. and um, they've just welcomed their latest ship to the fleet. Yes, they have. So, yeah, they've, um, for the last few m- uh, months, they've been a one ship fleet because they had um, retired some of their older ships in anticipation for um, introducing their new build. Um, so, she's called Spirit of Adventure. She's the second in a in a class of um, ships for um, for Saga, the first one, Spirit of Discovery, has already been in service for for a little while. Um, obviously, he's not sailing at the moment due to the cruise pause, but had been before that. Um, and they've got um, just over 550 cabins. They're all all balcony cabins on board, so um, quite a luxurious and a step up for the Saga travelers compared to what they might have been used to on some of the older ships. Um, and carries just under of course, 999 guests, so just under a thousand people. Uh, on board so sort of a mid-size uh, small to mid-size ship i suppose is the best way to characterize it um and she was built at mayer werft in germany which is another one of these uh, very big very active shipyards that has um its main yard 
Um, but then it also has uh, in Papenburg there, but it also has sort of subsidiaries and, and agreements with other yards to allow them to do maintenance and that sort of thing at, at different locations. Um, and so she's been accepted now and is part of the Saga fleet, which means that she's undertaken her sea trial. She's gone through all of that process and now Saga is happy to take her on board and officially take ownership of the ship. I think we've covered nearly every aspect of shipbuilding in this, this short part of the podcast. <laughs> yes, but there's the one thing we have princess and shipbuilding podcast <laughs> extravaganza. <laughs> but there's one thing we haven't touched on, and we were talking off air, and we don't know if it's um, specific to a particular shipyard or a particular uh, corporation of uh, brands, but um, Holland America's Rotterdam has just undertaken its coin ceremony. Yeah, so this is something that you'll, you'll see on, um, on ships, and some of the ships, they display it um, – the coins very proudly in a public area um, for passengers to see. But uh, historically, it was um, more of a sort of a superstition kind of element where it would the coin a coin would be welded or hit, or before welding would be sort of placed within the the keel or within the lower parts of the ship um, from a sort of good luck, I guess, perspective. But basically what it is, is uh, this this ship here, Rotterdam, She she's the new flagship of Holland America that's under construction. Interestingly enough, we have spoken before, but she was to originally be called Rhindam. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, when the current Rotterdam or the previous Rotterdam was um, sold to Fred Olsen, they were able to rename the ship because Holland America's flagship's always called Rotterdam. It's a bit of a tradition on how they operate their, their fleet. Um, and so... This particular one, she's a, you know, Holland America is a, um, a Dutch brand. Um, and so they have um, welded uh, the Dutch Gilder from the year that the company undertook its first uh, recorded voyage. So from way back in the 1870s, a very old coin um, to sort of signify that this ship has um, now completed its actual construction, has been floated out and is now ready for its interior to, to be installed so um and this isn't unique just to holland america line because i have seen it on ships that have been built for other brands as well um but some companies is uh, and as you were mentioning off off air um some of the brands they don't display them um so it's sort of a, a yeah. brand by brand um decision i guess as to whether they're put in the place of display or whether they're um more discreetly placed because it's um, something that's important from the from the shipbuilding perspective in terms of that tradition yep yep great maritime um, traditions of course um now your video this week ties in very nicely with what we spoke about right at the top of the show with the 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 history there but just remind us um what we can find on youtube this week uh so this week we're um, putting up a, a video about the sun and sea princess they're basically how they transformed princess from a from a small subsidiary of P&O to become um, the bigger of those two in terms of cruising back during the P&O Princess era. And, of course, now since P&O Princess merged with Carnival Corporation, um, Princess Cruises is one of the leading brands within um, Carnival Corp. And a lot of the things that you see on the current Princess ships can be traced back to decisions that were made for the Sun class, the Sun's Princess, Dawn Princess, Sea Princess, and Ocean Princess. So um, that's that's the video. You've obviously heard a little bit about it here, but if you're interested in more, just head over to my YouTube channel, um, youtube.com slash Chris Cunard. And that link is, of course, always in the show notes as well. Chris, always a pleasure, mate. Always great to chat with you. I'm sure next Friday we'll be coming around very, very quickly once again. Yes, I'll see you in a few minutes, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Bye now. Take care. 
Uh, my next guest on uh, today's podcast is a very special guest. Uh, Robin West is the Vice President of Expeditions at Seabourn and is uh, currently joining me from the Netherlands. Robin, welcome to the show. Hi, Barry. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, it's uh, early morning here, of course. Not too early, but uh, a little bit of a time difference. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for having me. No, my, my pleasure. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today because you've got such a beautiful product and such a wealth of experience in uh, some very, very special parts of the world. But I think we just need to go back a few steps and see uh, how, what path led you to to be, one, an expedition leader, a dive master, and then all of a sudden the vice president of uh, expeditions for an ultra luxury expedition line. Sure. Um, you're going to make me uh, feel old now all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you know, I, I guess my entire childhood, I was always a fairly active person, did a lot of sports, um, loved the ocean, always everything. I grew up next to the ocean and every single holiday we ever took was, was, was kind of revolved around the ocean. So, you know, I started uh, at a later stage when I went to university. Um, as poor students do, you don't always have that much money. And uh, every year, wintertime, a dive company used to come around and advertising cheaper diving courses and so my friends and what we ended up doing is every year we would do a diving course and of course through the oh, wow. diving I really got addicted even further to the ocean and um, eventually completed all my diving courses up to a master scuba diver instructor and uh, then started to travel the world out to the Cayman Islands, uh, spent a bit of time there working as a diving instructor, I then spent a year in uh, Grand Comores of the East Coast of Africa working as a diving instructor. And then after that, I came back to South Africa, um, which is where I'm originally from. And um, I came back. Uh, obviously, prior to leaving the country, I had worked quite extensively in dive shops in South Africa. And then eventually, I mm -hmm. bought a dive shop in Neisner on the Garden Loop in South Africa. Oh, wow. And uh, I owned and operated that dive center for a number of years and then bought a second dive center on the Garden Loop and just down the road from Neisner, also on the Garden Loop, that's called Beckenberg Bay. Um, they have a beautiful hotel that sits out uh, on kind of a small island almost in the ocean. And uh, so we, I ran those two and operated those two dive centers. And with that, we had uh, outdoor um, adventure activities. We offered sea kayaking, abseiling, rap jumping, um, canoe safaris. So then I operated wow. for a number of years. And then out of the blue, I had a gentleman one day walk into my shop and say, you know, I, I work on an expedition vessel. We're looking for qualified Zodiac drivers to, to, to come and work and do a South Pacific season for us. And, uh, of course, anyone who knows South Africa, the garden route is quite seasonal. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, fantastic, great opportunity. I can do this while business is quiet. And uh, never having you know, heard of the expedition industry in my life, um, I had a meeting with this gentleman who spoke. Two hours later, we booked my flights to South America, to Valparaiso. Uh, and a couple of weeks later, I jumped on my very first expedition ship ever, leaving Valparaiso, uh, heading across the South Pacific and picking up our first guests in Easter Island. I was employed as a Zodiac driver, dive master, and then proceeded to spend the next two months working on an expedition ship uh, going across the South Pacific from uh, east to west and eventually finishing up in Guam. And that was it for me. This it, 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 it was the most incredible way to travel. It was the most incredible way to see destinations. And uh, I went back to South Africa, um, continued with my business, 
the company I worked for invited me to come back again for an Antarctic season, followed by another South Pacific season. Once I completed that, I uh, came back, sold my business, and have now been working for expedition companies and on expedition ships for ever since then. And this was probably 17 years ago. Wow, incredible. What a story. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, you know, I never knew the expedition industry ever existed, but I kind of, I had done a lot of things that gave me the basic qualifications to join an expedition ship from dive master to driving boats to first aid courses and things like that. And so a lot of those skills that I had transferred exceptionally well into the expedition industry. And to be totally honest, after I'd done my first season down in Antarctica, I, I fell in love with Antarctica. It's a place like any other on the planet, and uh, it really was an easy decision for me to to sell the businesses and uh, move into the expedition industry full time. Incredible! I half expected you to say that somebody gave you a book of polar bears or penguins as a young child, and that started the dream of one day getting to Antarctica. But it, realistically, it was a your skills and a chance meeting with a with a stranger. It is, you know, life is life is full of opportunities, and you know, I. I I've always had so many friends who are always like, oh, you know, you've got the you've got the best job in the world, the things you do, the places you see. And I'm like, well, just send me a CV, you know. It, it's nothing <laughs> that potentially you can do. But it, it comes down to taking that jump, taking that risk, making a bit of effort. And, uh, you know, that I, I could have said to that gentleman who walked into my office, oh, no, you know, that's not, that's not something I'd be interested in. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. It just sounded exceptionally exciting. And yep. uh, I took the opportunity. So... It's, it's, I've been exceptionally grateful for that opportunity ever since. I'm sure. Now, um, our listeners may think it's as easy as, uh, you know, taking the ship to Ashwire and setting off and just seeing what, what, what's discovered. But obviously, there's a lot more work that goes on in the background way before that. How far out before uh, a departure date is the planning and the, the, the thought process starting before an exp- expedition cruise departs? Um. Yes, you're, you're right. You know, uh, guests, of course, don't see that side of it. They don't see the years of planning that goes into it. I would say somewhere between two and a half to three years out is when we start conceptualizing with plans and ideas and itineraries. Um, what we do with Seaborn and what we've done, in fact, for Seaborn Venture with, with her itineraries is we flew in expedition leaders who work for us to, to obviously use their, their knowledge and their resources. We also flew in one or two captains and staff captains within the expedition industry. And we mm-hmm. sat down in the, the office in Seattle and uh, we obviously start planning an itinerary in terms of where we want to take the vessel, what kind of experience we want to deliver. And of course, a lot of expedition specific type planning when it comes to itineraries does revolve around the type of vessel and the capabilities that that vessel gives you. The greater those capabilities, potentially the better planning and the greater further north or south you can go. So it also revolves quite a lot around the, the actual vessel's capabilities when itinerary planning. But you know, once you've got a draft itinerary, many people think, oh, it's just the, uh, the itinerary planner who sits down and puts artillery together and then you know shares it with everyone else but it's quite the contrary you know once we have a rough draft of an itinerary um we then invite all parties from marketing to sales to provisioning to nautical to technical because the operating artillery is successful you need to be able to have buying from every department to make sure they can support the vessel the nautical team can support the vessel they have knowledge in the area they have captains with knowledge in the area 
provisioning of the ship to get things there. And also, you know, I've been to some of the most incredible places in the world. And there's a few places, although they're spectacular, the world doesn't know about them. What the world doesn't know about, you can't sell things. So it's cool. also being able to sell a destination effectively. You can plan the greatest itinerary in the world, but people have not heard about it. And, and, you know, people, it's not going to sell. And, and, and I can give you a typical example of that. You know, there's, there's, there's a place on the east coast of Greenland where we've taken seaborne venture called Scoresby Sound. And even a lot of people who've spent time in the expedition industry and traveling, they're not entirely sure what Scoresby Sound is. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the largest fuel systems in the world. It's on the east coast of Greenland. And it's a particularly special, special place. But it's, it's, it's also getting you know, marketing to understand what we're selling. So there yeah. are a lot of moving parts to, to planning an itinerary. Um, obviously, staffing, you know, we want to look at staffing almost uh, a minimum of 12 to 18 months out to secure the right staff to bring these destinations mm -hmm. to life. So, you know, the initial planning, the initial kind of straw man drawing ideas, deployments, probably somewhere around about two years out to two and a half years before we actually eventually operate that itinerary. Incredible. And is there a little known fact that, you know, that the average person that uh, has never been on an expedition cruise would have no understanding of, or even an experienced oh, uh, cruiser? You know, it's the one thing I could say to people who've never been on an expedition trip, it is the greatest form of travel in the world. It is also very, very addictive. I've seen it over the years. I've seen on various expedition trips that I've worked for, you know, guests who've done a lot of cruising come onto an expedition ship and they're expecting a similar kind of product because it's a ship that's on the ocean and you're moving from destination to destination. But what they eventually get and the product that is delivered to them becomes one that is very addictive. And for people who haven't been on an expedition ship, it's very hard to get an appreciation of what it's like, the camaraderie, the... the you know, the closeness between the expedition team and the guests and the destinations and the sharing of knowledge and experience and visiting those destinations. Um, guests get addicted and keep coming back and back and back again. You will find that most expedition companies have incredibly high repeat ratio um, because, you know, it is so addictive. So for someone who hasn't been on an expedition, I would really encourage them to go on an expedition ship. It's... It's not just another cruise. It is an exceptionally different experience that is very, very different. I couldn't agree more. I am, um, whilst I haven't done an expedition to say the Arctic or the Antarctic, I have done small ship cruising and okay. I feel very similar about that. You know, a lot of people yeah. start off on the big white ships and then they try a small ship and the experience is so different that they, they really do fall com completely in love with a different part of the industry. So I can completely imagine transporting that experience into a remote ex destination and it just being elevated even more. Yeah, no, it is. You know, you know, every brand in the world, every cruise line, they, they deliver an incredible product. It, it, it's, and, and of course, there's different products for different people. But, um, you know, small ships, the intimacy, um, the bases you can get to, the things you can do, it is an exceptional way to travel. Now, we have to admit that... Um, 
there's a big boom in expedition cruising and it's changed an awful lot even if we go back say 10 years ago there was a lot of the the old russian icebreakers still around and i have to say and i think in the last two years there's been more new expedition ships launched than there has been in the last 10 years so can you see a difference when you're out and about in these destinations are you noticing more traffic or are you just noticing that the new ships are so much better for the environment so you know there is definitely a growth um i'm very lucky to sit on the executive committee for iata iata being the international association of antarctic tour operators and kind of regulates and helps manage tourism down in antarctica and probably our greatest focus over the last couple of years is managing for growth we without a doubt acknowledge that growth is coming we obviously see it we see the number of expedition ships being built and i know one of our sister company in the north aika which uh, represents the arctic they've also put a lot of time and effort into looking at ways to manage growth there's no doubt when you go down to antarctica now you know maybe 10 years ago you were lucky to see another ship um, there of course weren't as many ships down in antarctica operating um, now when you're down on the peninsula you definitely still have that feeling of being isolated potentially being the only person down there but you do see other ships from time to time it's not a regular occurrence it's not you know it, sure. it's still like oh wow there's a ship and people get actually quite excited to see another ship down there because <laughs> they don't see it that often so you are seeing more ships but in no way has that feeling of being at the end of the world having this place incredible place to yourself that feeling hasn't gone away um Good. but you know, both Ico, both IATA, um, they do an incredible job in terms of managing the growth with regards to ship schedulers, wildlife guidelines, site guidelines, number of visitors. And, and to be totally honest, you know, I, I've, I've been visiting both areas for a number of years. And although you see climate change happening to the areas, um, you know, you see the glaciers kind of receding, you see a little bit less snow coverage on the mountains. You do notice that things are, are slowly changing in the areas. There's no doubt about that. Um, but what you don't see is an impact from the expedition ships having come ashore, operated, visiting different destinations. There's definitely, amongst the expedition companies, a fantastic unity in wanting to preserve these areas. And so the environmental impact is actually felt by the destinations from the expedition companies is very very many you know i can i can pick almost any land in south down in antarctica and having been there since 2002 i don't see any impact from tourism on those particular sites they're exceptionally well managed in terms of where you can go what you can do even at different times of the season based on breeding patterns you have to access and have access to different areas and so it's it's exceptionally well managed obviously there is growth coming outside of just you know additional tonnage in the actual destinations obviously what's being addressed and looked at too is what we refer to as gateway ports so gateway ports are are countries or towns or cities from which ships leave so antarctica for example you know ushuaia um, south africa australia new zealand these are kind of all gateway ports there's also a lot of focus on trying to work with the governments in these gateway ports to enhance 
infrastructure to support the growth that is coming. So there is without a doubt a lot of work being done in the background because the growth is coming, there's no doubt about it. Right now, we obviously are, are, are in a completely different situation, um, but when this passes, the growth you were anticipating, I believe, will be back and uh, will need to be managed. But, you know, the visited sites that we actually go to, the impact, and, and it's, you don't notice the impact on the sites and the places we visit. Good news. And uh, again, you're right, we're already seeing um, uh, demands. Well, the river cruises have already restarted in Europe, so river is obviously going to be the first rebound. But I think following that, it will be the small ship and the expedition ship as people choose to travel with fewer guests. So uh, there's definitely a, a, a green light somewhere out there in the in the future. Yeah. Now, <laughs> we spoke a, a little bit about Antarctica and the Arctic, but obviously there are warm weather expedition places. Uh, one very close to me here is the Kimberley. We've also got places like Papua New Guinea. Um, for anybody who's never heard of the Kimberley or never understood what's there, I know you spent a, a little bit of your earlier career there. Um, how special is the Kimberley region? I've heard people explain the Kimberley as Antarctica without ice. So okay. that might put it in some sort of context. It is a magical destination. Um, I spent three years up in the Kimberley, probably led about 30 or 40 expeditions in the Kimberley between Darwin and Green. Um, and it is a very special place. First of all, what makes it really special and what creates a lot of these unique experiences in the Kimberley is the fact that it has some of the largest tidal changes in the world. Um, you know, these massive tidal changes produce phenomena in the Kimberley that do not occur anywhere else in the world. So, you know, places like Montgomery Reef, uh, Montgomery yep. Reef is a 400 square mile reef that at high tide you can sail a ship across the top of it. But at low tide, this entire reef structure slowly appears and comes out of the water. And there's a section of Montgomery Reef called the river where you can take the zodiacs up. And uh, it's an experience like, like no other in the world. You know, what we used to do with our guests is we would drive the zodiacs out into the middle of the, what looks like the middle of the ocean. And you would obviously have the, you would have a GPS in your hand knowing exactly where you are. And then you would just wait. And all the guests would be like, what are you waiting for? And then all <laughs> of a sudden you would start to see a ripple on the water. And that ripple would go all the way to the horizon as far as you could see. And you don't have to wait long because the Kimberley has these 12-meter tidal changes on a good day. The water is dropping so fast. Just 30 minutes makes a huge difference. And all of a sudden, you go from having no reef to having, you know, half a meter of the reef out of the water. So you sit there on the edge, and all of a sudden, this reef starts to come out the water. And then you slowly but surely make your way up the river, and then... An hour later into the Zodiac Tour, you're potentially three, four meters below the reef and you're up this narrow river on either side. You have these cascading waterfalls as the water on top of the reef continuously flows down into this river. And of course, along the way, you've got dugongs, you've got rays, you've got turtles. There's many times a plethora of wildlife. Obviously, all the bird life comes in to start feeding and all the fish that gets trapped in the reef. So it's just this tidal phenomena that brings in all this wildlife and the zodiacs will you know, explore this narrow river and obviously as the tide continues to change so this becomes more and more dramatic until eventually you might be four or five meters 
below where you started in this river. Um, and so that, that's really a, quite a special experience. That same tidal phenomenon creates what's known as the horizontal waterfalls in Colbert Bay. Mm -hmm. um, yep. You know, you take the ship up and you go past Slug Island, and then also everything has to be timed with the tides. If you don't get the tides right in Kimberley, you don't have a very long day doing nothing. You really have to get them right. But, you know, taking the zodiacs, shooting through the horizontal waterfalls, there's the horizontal waterfalls, what happens is, You've got these parallel mountain ranges, and there's these two small gaps. And what happens is, as the tide comes in, it forces water in behind these parallel mountain ranges. And then when the tide changes, the tide in the front of these parallel mountain ranges moves out faster than the trapped water behind mm -hmm. these parallel mountain ranges. And you literally having a horizontal waterfall and on some days on big tidal changes you, you're actually looking up at an angle as this water that's trapped behind tries to rush and come away <laughs> um, it is really something quite special and of course you've got all the sandstone gorges places like king george river exceptionally special you know 10 miles zodiac cruise up this gorgeous sandstone gorge get to the end you've got these two 80 meter waterfalls flowing in you take the zodiac right in under there's the opportunity to start to a hike at the top of the King George Falls. It's it's a magical area. And then from you know from a cultural perspective, what's fantastic in the Kimberley um, is the different forms of, of rock art that you have, everything from the, the Wajina rock art to places like Raft Point um, to the Bradshaw rock art. And then it's fantastic too is heading over to places like Biggie Island where you can go into the caves and actually see contact art. You can actually have a look at them tell exactly what countries and what nationalities the locals were seen in ships off the coast in, in the early years. And so you know, it's a very diverse place and fantastic wildlife, Hunter River, the crocodiles, the mangrove environments, all the bird life, the eagles. Um, it, it really is special. And, and to be honest, it's the, the sandstone um, um, sunrises and sunsets, where it, it just lights up the area. It, it is a beautiful place. I've uh, never heard a bad thing said about the Kimberley. Everybody that goes there completely falls in love with it and also often say that they just wish they'd been there earlier. They, they, they've left it yeah. uh, probably too late and they, they would have done it uh, in their young years if they, they could have. Yeah, no, the Kimberley, it, it has a lot to offer. You, know, you do need... Uh, a little bit of agility and fitness. Some of these places you have to hike up to like a beautiful overhang or a cave to see like the watching art at Rock Point. Um, so yeah, it, it's, I would say the sooner you can get up there, the better. It's, uh, it's, 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 I think the one thing I would still like to do is um, I've done the Kimberley coastline from a ship a number of times. I think the one thing I'd like to do is you know, get a 4 by 4 and explore that coastline from the shoreside one. Sure, and go out to places like the Bungle Bungles, fabulous. Yes, the Bungle Bungles are, are pretty special and, and, and really only discovered a, a couple of years ago, not that long ago. Now, we're going to take you back to Antarctica just for one moment. A question that I get asked uh, an awful lot is how different, I mean, it's a relatively short season, but how different is each month? Obviously, uh, the, the penguin chicks are born at a certain point, but is there a big difference to say going in late November to going in February? Um, so there is, there, there, there's, there's quite a visual difference. So, you know, going early in the season, like November, um, 
it's very white, it's very pristine. Um, so, you know, coming ashore, you're walking on snow, you're visiting penguin rookeries and that, but it, it's, it's got that kind of magical wonderland because it's still completely covered in snow from, from, from the previous winter. So, you know, visually, it is quite different. Um, if going, for example, in February, if you're coming ashore at the same landing site like Hooverville or something in Antarctica, you're no longer walking on snow. A lot of the snow will be gone on the landing site, you'll be walking on small rocks or boulders. Um, right. And yes, it, it's, look, I first of all need to say there is no such thing as a bad trip to Antarctica. I, I, I get the question often as well. Guess always like, what's the best time to go? And, you know, I often say to them, well, what is it that you want to see? Because there's never going to be a bad trip to Antarctica. Every guest who goes to Antarctica has the best trip of their life. It's, it's, I always tell this to guests when I, when I do talks or presentations around the world. Every single guest that goes to Antarctica and I see at a later stage, they say the same few words to me, best trip of my life ever. Those words, yeah. almost word for word, come out of their mouth. And so, you know, what I generally say to guests is, what do you want to specifically see in Antarctica? Do you want to see Antarctica beautiful, white and crisp and clean, and, you know, snow and everything everywhere? Do you want to see chicks? Do you want to see them just coming out of the eggs, or do you want to see the larger chicks where they're nice and fluffy and running around and really curious and, and, and wanting to come to <laughs> you? Um, or do you want to come down to Antarctica and um, you know your interest is wanting to see as many whales as possible? I, I think. That's more the guidance that, that should be given to people in terms of what they're wanting to see. If you're wanting to see a little bit of everything, the one thing that is really good on the peninsula is over a very short distance, the breeding cycle is quite staggered because obviously the penguins can't breed until the snow clears. So mm -hmm. the snow clears obviously quicker, further north. So when you come into the South Shetland Islands, you know, you're coming into an area where maybe you've got chicks already that are, that, are, that are one or two weeks old and if you get down to the peninsula they might still be on eggs and right. so there's sometimes you do see the life cycle sometimes quite nicely as you start in the Shetlands come down onto the peninsula and then move further south where you can get sometimes in the Shetlands quite large chicks you can then come onto the peninsula, see smaller chicks, and then still be sometimes lucky and see some of the, the penguins actually on eggs. So, oh wow, there's yeah, it's you know, the one thing I would probably say if you're wanting to specifically have incredible whale encounters, rather come later in the year, late January, early February, tends to be more when the humpback whales are down there in their numbers. Um, right. That's not saying you won't see. Very hard pressed not to see whales during any sailing going down to Antarctica, but there is definitely a time where there are much higher concentration of whales down on the peninsula, and that's generally during the month of February. Um, so, if that's what you're specifically looking for, people always also say, When's the best time to go for weather? And to be totally honest with you, that no one can predict. Yes, you can say yep. January should be more stable weather, but sometimes in January, yeah, one or two systems come through, so it's very difficult to predict when is going to be the best weather to, to experience Antarctica. But to be totally honest, you know, we, we so often get guests on board and they're always nervous about the Drake Passage and what's the weather going to be like the Drake <laughs> Passage. 
And then we have a beautiful flat calm drape passage and then guests like, oh, I feel like I've missed out on an experience. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's true. You, know, you don't want a perfectly flat drape because albatrosses don't fly when there's no wind. You know? So you want wind, you want swell, you want the ship to be moving because you want the wildlife around the vessel. You want to see the albatrosses flying, the sudden giant petrels. So, you know, you don't want a perfectly flat, calm ocean. You want a little bit of everything to get that complete experience coming from time to time. Incredible. Now, um, staying in the south, the sub-Antarctic islands are becoming, I guess, more and more popular. Um, obviously, cru- taking a cruise from places like the South Island of, uh, of New Zealand. But how do the sub-Antarctic island cruises differ from a, a true peninsula cruise? So... The big difference really going from South America to Antarctica or going from Australia and New Zealand to Antarctica tends to be the amount of sea time. Um, okay, sure. That is really the big difference. You know, going from Ushuaia in Argentina down to the peninsula, you're looking at 36 hours for most vessels with reasonable weather and you're down in the South Shetland. So, you know, in theory, what you then have is a day at sea following day, kind of lunchtime, you're arriving in the South Shetland Islands and you're potentially doing the first landing at HO or Half Moon or one of the islands. And, and so for guests, that's one day. And to be honest, you need that one day to do all your briefings and the mandatory talks and presentations yeah, and all those yeah. kind of things. So the, the distance between South America and Antarctica is, is really almost optimal for an expedition operation. Leaving from Australia or New Zealand, Obviously, you have the sub-Antarctic islands, um, which are a day or two away, potentially, and those are phenomenal. You know, probably comparable to to, 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 to the other side would be something like South Georgia. You know, just okay. prolific amounts of wildlife, fantastic areas. Obviously, small, isolated, southern ocean, not always the easiest places to operate. It's not always that easy to get shelter from kind of the southern ocean swell. Um, but then, of course, from there, heading down to Antarctica from Australia or New Zealand, it does tend to be, it's a longer trip. It's a, it's a good couple of days, it's three, four days at sea, heading down to you know, the Ross Sea, Commonwealth Bay, side of Antarctica. Being in the expedition industry for a while, what tends to happen is people go to Antarctica from Ushuaia, that will be their first experience of Antarctica for the majority of people. And then people who really fall in love with Antarctica make the choice to then go to Antarctica from Australia or New Zealand to see oh, okay. South Antarctic Islands, to see Commonwealth Bay, you know, those kind of areas. Um, in terms of the experience they deliver, you know, uh, I think both areas offer an incredible experience and but it's just the, the real big difference is the length of the voyage and the amount of time at sea as the ocean distance is much greater going from Australia and New Zealand. Sure, sure. Understand. Um, now, ex- ex- expeditions have been a, a huge part of Seabourne for, for quite some time now um, using the, the existing fleet, but uh, very exciting for, for you and your colleagues. You're launching your first purpose-built expedition vessel in the form of Seabourne Venture. Um, what sets her apart from the, the existing traditional um, yachts? So, um, Seabourne Venture is our first 
purpose-built ultra-luxury expedition vessel. She will take uh, 264 guests, so 132 suites. But um, really what sets her apart from the rest of our fleet is she has been purpose-built to explore remote destinations. So what really sets her apart is one, she has a PC6 ice-strengthened hull, which allows her to operate in polar environments. Um, she's also rated to operate in very, very cold environments around the world. So all the equipment on board the vessel is rated to minus 20 degrees. Oh, wow. um, she will also be the very first seaborne ship to have Aussie points and three bow thrusters. When we designed the vessel, we wanted her to be able to be very nimble and to be able to operate with ease in icy conditions surrounded by ice. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to head over to Upper Arctic last year when we did the ice trials, um, and they obviously make a replica of the hull, the Aussie pods, propulsion, and they have a big swimming pool that they freeze, and they do these ice tests to see how the ship will perform through ice. And oh, Seaboard wow. Adventure is more than capable of moving through one meter or three feet of solid ice. And in fact, based on her design, um, she, in fact, performs better moving backwards and breaking ice, moving in reverse through 1.2 meters of ice. So she's exceptionally <laughs> rugged in terms of her ability to operate in polar regions. The one reason we put the Aussie parts on too is because what happens when you operate in ice, you have to go down to two or three knots. And on a ship, when you go lose speed, you then lose steerage. However, with sure. Aussie parts, you have control of the ship regardless of what speed you're actually doing. So you know, a lot of the technical side of Seaborne Venture is, is a complete first for Seaborne in terms of building the ship. Other components, obviously, she'll carry 24 um, Zodiacs. She will carry a fleet of kayaks on board. Uh, she will also carry two seven-seater submarines capable of diving to 1,000 feet or 300 meters. And wow. each of those submarines also have their own dedicated sub-support chase boat. Um, for operations, and so you know, the complement of hardware that is being put onto Seaborne Venture is a first, not just for Seaborne, it's a first for the entire Carnival Corporation group. This is, this is probably going to be the smallest, most focused, purpose-built vessel that the, you know, the corporation has ever built. So um, I know there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of attention, and Everyone, I think, from the company is, is obviously wanting to get on the ship and visit the ship at some point because it truly is um, in a, an extremely focused product based on where the ship is going to operate and obviously the experience that we want to deliver. And I touched on that earlier. A lot of the itineraries that, that you build very much revolve around what the ship's capabilities are. And so when we set out to building the vessel, we wanted to make sure that we had the best possible hardware to ensure safe and exceptional experiences for our guests. Incredibly exciting. And uh, even more exciting, you, I noticed uh, probably within the last week or so that uh, the steel has already been cut on the second of these yes. uh, purpose-built vessels. Yeah, no, very, very exciting indeed. You know, in the, in the, in the current climate, it, it, it's obviously very easy to sometimes get frustrated and get a bit down. Um, but it's definitely very positive um, for myself and I think for everyone at Seaborn to see the commitment in terms of you know, 
just cut steel on our second vessel and to see those projects moving forward. Um, obviously, it, you know, it gets everyone excited at the office and it gets everyone upbeat. And so it is, without a doubt, exceptionally exciting as we we, we kind of almost the whole of the machinery on the first one is, is, is going to be concluded quite soon. And then from Chevalier, it gets put on a, on, on a barge and floated down to Mariotti. That will happen at the kind of end of the year. And so then the first ship is, is starting to be outfitted with Mariotti. And then, of course, the second ship will continue to, to, to be involved with the whole of the machinery. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, twice as much as going on now. We're building two ships almost simultaneously, which is, uh, very exciting and also you know, keeps us busy. Exactly. Now, I just had a thought as, as we were talking there. I know what an Azipod is, but for the, some of our listeners, they probably have no idea what that is. Uh, can you just quickly explain the concept of what that does for a ship? Yeah, no problem at all. So a lot of ships have what you call a traditional shaft with a propeller on it and then a rudder. So when a ship is sailing, that shaft is turning which then turns the propeller. So the propeller is constantly turning. And the way you change the angle in terms of where the ship or the way you steer the vessel is the rudder turns. So what happens is the propeller is pushing the wash across the rudder. And when you change the angle of the rudder, that then, of course, turns the vessel in the direction you want it to go. With an Aussie pod, what happens is that rudder, or sorry, that uh, that propeller is capable of turning 360 degrees. So there's no rudder, so to speak. Basically what you're doing is you're actually taking the propeller and you're turning that in the direction that you're wanting to go. So if you're stationary and you want to all of a sudden go in reverse, the propeller will move 180 degrees and then it will push you in reverse. If you want to go sideways, you turn the two propellers at a 90 degree angle to the hull, and it moves the ship sideways. So it allows much greater control of a vessel. To give you an example of what a lot of people may have seen is tugboats. Most tugboats mm-hmm. tend to have Aussie pods, and that's how they can move so nimbly in so many different directions so quickly, because they're not relying on a shaft and a rudder where you have much more of a delay in your response time to changing direction. And obviously your response time is drastically reduced as you reduce your speed. So an Ozipod's response is always 100%. Um, you know, you, I've been to these um, training facilities. So Carnival has C-Smart here in the Netherlands. And uh, I've actually watched captains come into a harbor they're through in a simulator and they will actually practice doing coming into a harbor and birthing a vessel. They will practice it with fixed shaft propulsion and Aussie propulsion. And the time it takes between the two is incredible. You know, if the entire operation maybe with uh, kind of fixed propulsion takes 30 or 40 minutes, you're looking at almost half the time on propulsion because you've got so much more wow. control and there's no delay in terms of response time when you're wanting to change direction. Incredible explanation. Thank you. Much appreciated. <laughs> now, we're going to change uh, the, the pace a little bit now. Just a few fast-fire uh, questions. I'll give you two options. You can just choose which will, uh, will be your, your, your personal preference or choice. Um, midnight Sun or the Northern Lights? Ah, 
Northern Lights every time. It's uh, it's something special to see. It's uh, I describe it as uh, fireworks for adults. Yeah, <laughs> I've been lucky enough to see it in Norway, and uh, it was incredible. I, the, uh, the 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 whole sky was just dancing, and uh, I'd, I'd, there's no picture or no video that could ever do it justice. It was spectacular. No, it's um, you know, I've seen it uh, a number of times over Greenland and things like that. When we start finishing our, our Arctic season and move kind of west towards Canada and uh, the west coast of Greenland, but it's it's one of those things that. You, know, you, you stand on deck with all the guests, and as it starts, it's like you don't know if it's going to get more or less, or when it's going to come or go. And then you, you have these moments where it just fires up, and the entire sky is lit up, and then it goes. And it's always interesting because you know, people are outside freezing, but no one will go. It, it's like everyone's mesmerized as you watch this happen. <laughs> it, it is magical. Antarctica or the Arctic? Antarctica. Sushi or the grill by Thomas Keller? Uh, the grill by Thomas Keller. Um, I'm, uh, I must admit, I'm, I enjoy steak and uh, it is absolutely phenomenal. Papua New Guinea or the Kimberley? Oh, that's a very difficult one. You know, the, uh, I've done a lot of trips into the Kimberley. I've done a lot of trips into Papua New Guinea. The, the, the cultural experiences, the villages, the, the encounters you have with, with people are truly magical in some of these areas. Um, whew, that's a tough one. I would probably have to say Papua New Guinea um, okay. because of the cultural experiences I've had in some remote areas. Truly, truly special. Fabulous. And uh, sunrise or sunset? <laughs> I'm going to say, this one I'm going to go a little bit of both. I'm going to have to say sunrise in Antarctica and sunset in the Kimberley. Ah, okay. Good answer. Good I answer. in Antarctica um, on a beautiful, clear morning. Uh, you know, maybe you've got to get up at uh, 2 a.m. Um, but when that early morning light hits the, 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 the mountain peaks, it's incredibly pinky orange. And for the first half an hour to 45 minutes, the hues and the color changes is, is, is really something quite special. And then, of course, as I said before, the Kimberley, in the evening, when the sun sets, it lights up the iron yep. ore that's in the sandstone, and it's something that's yep. Yep, yep, incredible. Um, now, if there is any listeners listening in and they're thinking, you know, um, I'd love to, to get involved in expeditions, what would be your, your best tip of advice? So I would say, you know, get out and do some training, do some courses, um, put yourself in a position to be employed. The expedition industry over the last 10 years is, is changing. You know, previously, um, you know, people were, were, were working in the industry. It was 100% pure passion. People were delivering phenomenal experiences. But like with anything, as industries grow and develop and as they become, you know, slightly larger, um, there's a level of professionalism that needs to be brought in to these kind of industries. And in fact, the, the expedition industry is going, with the growth coming, is going through that change in terms of you know, looking at qualifications. So whether it's doing an RYA or US Coast Guard license to learn how to drive a Zodiac, heading out and doing a rifle handling course, which makes you employable potentially in the Arctic as a bear guy, doing your first aid training or remote wilderness first aid training, um, 
and I think one of the biggest things, you know, aside from, from getting a couple of those basic skills, you know, whether that's a dive master to be able to dive in some areas, what's becoming more popular now too, quite a number of vessels have submarines on board. Um, and so, you know, becoming a submarine pilot, I know there's a company in the Netherlands, in fact, the company you bought our submarines through, you both worked, um, they've opened up a fantastic training facility in Curaçao where you can now go and do a submarine pilot license. So, mm-hmm. you know, right now it's a matter of, I would go out and, and get as many of these qualifications as you can, which then puts you in a very, very strong position to be employed. And then after that, it's a matter of reading, reading, and reading, and learning about these destinations. So, you know, guests that come on expeditions, they don't want to go to school. They definitely are on a holiday. They want to engage. And to be totally honest, you know, when you're in the zodiacs and you're talking about the ice and the wildlife and what they're looking at, they obviously want all that knowledge, but I think many times you're sharing also personal experiences with them in terms of where you've been, what you've done, and what you've seen. So you definitely want to do a lot of research and, uh, and obviously get that knowledge for the areas you'd like to operate. But yeah, you know, getting the initial courses is, is, is kind of step one uh, in terms of being trained and ready and qualified to, to make your own to the education industry. Fabulous advice. Now, if um, the current COVID situation wasn't happening and uh, tomorrow we could go anywhere in the world on any particular ship, where would it be and uh, why? Um, if I could jump on a ship and go anywhere tomorrow, I would probably choose Scoresby Sound in East Greenland. Okay. You know, a number of years ago, um, a captain once said to me, and a captain who very, very experienced expedition captain, he said, uh, I was on the bridge once in Antarctica with him, and he said to me, oh, I saw the artillery next to the game schools in sound. And I said, yeah. I said, yeah. I've heard from a few people. It's a great place. And he said to me, he said, make sure you are on that trip. And I was like, why? He says, because that's the only other place in the world that you knew away like Antarctica. He says, oh, make yeah. sure you're on that trip. And of course, I made sure I was on that trip. And, uh, you know, we, we left Smallmont, we came down, we went to Jan Mayan, stopped at Jan Mayan, went from Jan Mayan, went into uh, Scoresby Sound. Scoresby Sound is the world's largest fjord system. Oh. You're, you know, you're sailing down some fjords in Scoresby Sound with a, the water depth is 1,200 meters, and the mountains next to you are 2,000 meters high. Wow. And you can almost berth a ship on some of these cliffs because it's so vertical. So, and then of course, what's fantastic is you've got the wildlife, you've got polar bears, musk ox, there's some fantastic walks, hikes, and of course you've got the Greenland ice sheet pouring in through the fjords by glaciers into some of these areas, and it, it really is overwhelming. Uh, you know, you've also got a small little village, uh, Itokotumi, that you can go and visit on the way out, and then kind of like the northern entrance to Scoresby Sound. But I'll never forget, we, we spent um, four or five days exploring Scoresby Sound. There's an island in Scoresby Sound called Oya, Red Island. And it's this beautiful red rock. And then you've got all these white icebergs pouring into the small bay. And I remember the Zodiac cruise in there. And we had guests coming back from that Zodiac cruise in tears because it was so emotional. It was 
it's an outstanding place. You know, if you then sail all the way around Scoresby Sound in the fjords, and you head up kind of in the northwest fjord section with the Bear Islands, and the icebergs that are breaking off the off the glaciers and moving in there are are huge. They're, they're, they're extremely impressive to see. I remember doing a zodiac cruise there where we were taking zodiacs and exploring all around these, these massive icebergs. And the ship, the captain, he was actually like, well, I'm going to have some fun too. And I remember him taking the ship and doing a pretty much a zodiac ship cruise in and amongst all these icebergs because it just it, <laughs> it was one of those perfect days, not a breath of wind. And it was just, you know, everybody, people on the ship, everyone in the zodiac, they wanted to explore this area. It, it's, it's fantastic. I, I, I think, you know, the captain, when he said to me, it's one of those places that will impress you as much as Antarctica did, and that is, that is the truth. It is overwhelming for the senses, very similar to the experience that, that, that you get when you're down in Antarctica. Fabulous. It's just been added to my list for sure. <laughs> now, be- before we let you go, um, Seaborn has a very, very loyal following. You've got some incredibly loyal guests. Um, obviously, some of them uh, are desperate to get to back out to sea and to meet their, their favorite crew and sail on their favorite vessels. Have you got a, a quick message to, uh, to any of those guests that may be listening? Um, yes. You know, I, I think to all our Seaborn club members, um, well, all I can say is, is be patient. We are working exceptionally hard behind the scenes to, to get our ships back into operation. Um, as we've always said from the very word, go that we will always be guarded by the science and we have to be guarded by the science in regards to what's taking place right now but um you know it's not just it's not just you who are wanting to travel um our crew myself everyone who loves cruising wants to be back on the ocean we want to be back on sailing again um right now we just have to be patient we have to do the right thing we have to to wait and and, and when the science tells us it's it's time to go again we will be 100% ready. We obviously can't wait to welcome back every single one of our Seaborn guests because cruising is an incredible experience. Um, you know, people who haven't done it, they don't they don't understand what it's like to be out on the ocean, to to, to be on a ship with, with like-minded people, to be learning about destinations, um, the friendships you make, not just with your fellow passengers, with the crew, um, it's life-changing events, and uh, it's 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 something that even for myself, the second uh, you know, things return to normal, I'm going to be back on the ship again exploring the world. It's, it's, it's an incredible way to, to to spend your time. I couldn't agree more. And. Um... We're recording this on Friday. Just yesterday, it was, of course, International Maritime Day. So a huge uh, shout out and a huge thank you to to you and all your fellow crew members and officers uh, around the world. We, we we really do thank you for everything that you do. Robin, it has been my absolute pleasure to speak to you today. I've, I've learned so much. I've uh, uh, got so much respect for everything that you and your, your team do. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to us. And uh, I, I look forward to, to being able to, to get up back on the ocean with, with you and your team in the, the not too distant future. Thank you very much, Barry. It's uh, it's been fantastic. It's uh, it's great to be able to you know at the moment it's 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 not being able to 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 actually be on the ocean. The next best thing is to talk about all these fantastic things. Of course, it, it's, you know, it gets you excited. I want to go back to the Kimberley again. It's been a few years, but no, thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, and 
yeah, like yourself uh, and everyone, uh, we're looking forward to be able to get that back onto the ocean. Thanks, Robbie. Really appreciate it. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Until next time, bon voyage. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.